1 John chapter 2, and let's begin reading right there in verse number 1. You know, as I was, every time I get up here, and if you, if you notice, if you really pay attention to some of my mannerisms, and, which I really don't suggest that you do, because I want you to just hear the Word of God, but you'll notice that if I have a long introduction before the, pre, or before the reading of the Word, I'm kind of a mess. But somehow, just starting with the reading of the Word and then going into the I don't know, it's like we invite God right in here among us. And Isaiah 55, 11 says that his word will not return void. That means the more his word is permeated into any preacher's message, there's power in that. And we want to, for lack of a better phrase, tap into that power this morning. So look at verse number one. The Bible says, John writes, my little children, these things write out unto you that you sin not. And if any man sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. And he is the propitiation for our sins and not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. And hereby we do know that we know him if we keep his commandments. He that saith, I know him and keepeth not his commandments is a liar and the truth is not in him. But whoso keepeth his word in him, verily is the love of God perfected. Hereby know we that we are in him. And he that saith he abideth in him ought himself also so to walk, even as he walked. Brethren, I write no new commandment unto you, but an old commandment which ye have had from the beginning. The old commandment is the word which ye have heard from the beginning. Again, a new commandment I write unto you, which thing is true in him and in you, because the darkness is past and the true light now shineth. He that saith he abideth in the light, or he that saith he is in the light and hateth his brother, is in darkness even until now. He that loveth his brother abideth in light, and there is none occasion of stumbling in him. But he that hateth his brother is in darkness, and walketh in darkness, and knoweth not whither he goeth, because that darkness hath blinded his eyes. Heavenly Father, Lord, we thank you so much, Lord, for who you are. We thank you for your Son. Lord, we thank you for the cross. And we thank you for loving us. We thank you for indwelling in us. We thank you for every soul that's been, Lord, just be given life and resurrected. Lord, we thank you that you are the light of the world. And we have the light of the world in us in a dark world. And Lord, we just come to you this morning, Lord. And we ask for your power. We ask for the presence of your Holy Spirit, Lord. Fill me. Fill, fill us all with your power, Lord, your presence, would help us know that we've been with you this morning. Lord, collectively, I know that we are wherever we go as believers, you are always with us. You'll never leave us nor forsake us, Lord. But we know from your word and from your spirit that there's something special about coming together. The saints gathering, Lord, to sing praises to you, to read your word, to preach, to honor you and just lift you up. And Lord, may we do all these things this morning. We thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. So last week I, I reminded you, or we were reminded, that, the, that this letter is written by the Apostle John. He's the human penman of this letter, as well as 2 John, 3 John, uh, the book of the Gospel according to John, and the book of Revelation. Now, and all five of these letters are believed to have been written at least in the last quarter of the first century, probably a little bit later than that, but in the first century. Uh, and that's the same century that God was made manifest in the flesh. I think that's important that the time the timeline was short there. Uh, and last week we were last week we were also reminded of just how significant it is that the life of God was robed in the flesh of man. The life of God was robed in the flesh of man. And in this letter, 
I believe, I personally hold a strong conviction that John makes a very convincing argument that Jesus, the word of life, he is equal to the Father in light, in life, in love, and any other attribute of God. He is God in the flesh. You see, if you think about it, Hebrews 13, 8 says, Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. The only way for that to be true, if, if God is, or if Jesus Christ is actually God. In fact, the entirety of the New Testament is predicated upon the fact that Jesus became man, that God became flesh. In 1 John chapter 4, verse 2, the Bible says, Hereby know ye the Spirit of God, and every spirit that confesseth that Jesus Christ is come in the flesh is of God. Now, we'll, we'll give that a little bit more application and, and, and uh, study when we get to 1 John chapter 4. But for right now, we see that Jesus Christ is, in fact, come in the flesh. And the same Spirit who led holy men of God, the same Spirit who led John the Apostle himself to write the words that God deemed necessary for us to know, we find that right here. And in those words... We learn about our Creator. We learn about our Redeemer. We learn about the King of Kings, the Lord of Lords, and the only eternal God, Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ. You know, we see His fingerprints all throughout creation. And we see His glory in heavens. Those things are true, but I think it's important that we see the person of Christ. Okay, we see the witness of Christ in each other, but we see the person of Christ in these words, in the words written by the Lord Jesus Christ or inspired by the Lord Jesus Christ, inspired by the Holy Spirit uh, upon these men. Romans ten seventeen says, faith comes by hearing. Hearing what? The word of God. The Word of God. So even if I get over here and I'm sharing the gospel and I, and I give some truth, that maybe it's not a Bible verse, but if that truth is based on the Bible verse, there's power in that, and through that comes faith. That is the only way that faith happens. Faith comes by the hearing, and hearing by the Word of God. And speaking of that Word of God, remember what John wrote in chapter 1 at verse 3. He says, that which we have seen and heard, which is Jesus Christ, of course, he goes, him declare we unto you. He is declaring the Lord Jesus Christ. The Bible declares Jesus. And isn't that, isn't that just great? Isn't that fantastic that the Lord Jesus or, or the Bible declares the Lord Jesus Christ? And we've already read through chapter 2, but I want you to look at the last four words of verse 1. Jesus Christ, the righteous. Jesus Christ. The righteous. The last four words of verse 1 of chapter 2. So this morning, I have simply entitled this message, Jesus Christ, the righteous. You know, if we get a whole lot of things right theologically and we miss that, we've missed it all. We must know Jesus Christ and we must know that he is the righteous. And towards the end of chapter 1, look at verse 9 again, our memory verse for this month. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. You know, for most of Christianity, it at least seems, it at least seems so, and it was true in my life, unfortunately, that once a person is converted, he is forgiven from 
for his or her own sins, his or her own sins, it seems like nothing else changes in that individual's life. Okay, they're saved, and but it seems like a week later, it doesn't, it's not much different than a week before uh, they were saved. But hopefully it's a true conversion. But if there's any fruit, I think this is important to understand. If there's any fruit, including the gospel message within them, it is hidden to the world. It's hidden to believers, and it's hidden to the lost. If our gospel be hid, who's it hid from? The lost. And if you think about it, theologically speaking, and probably at any aspect, it is quite ridiculous, ridiculous, for a Christian to live in darkness. It is ridiculous. We've all been there. I've been there. Longer than we care to admit. But it is really illogical for a Christian of the light to walk in the darkness of the world. It's illogical. It doesn't make any sense. Think of Lazarus for a moment. Jesus brought him forth from the dead to live among the living. Right? He brought him forth from the dead to live among the living. Imagine the astonishment of the people around and even that of Jesus when after he was brought forth and loosed from those grave clothes... He says, okay, thank you, and he begins to wrap himself up. And he just <laughs> walks back to the tomb, and he decides to live among the dead. That's ridiculous. Maybe we should call that version of Lazarus, Sarazzle. That's Lazarus spelled backwards, because it's like the opposite of what he's supposed to be. And I know that's, I know that's quite ridiculous, but we don't need to be a Sarazzle. We need to be a Christian. Of life, life, God lives us, God lives in us. And like Lazarus, we should put forth much effort to live in a way that pleases God who brought us life. Now think of, think of Lazarus, the life of Lazarus before he was risen from the dead and after. Do you think there was a change in his behavior? I think there was a very much change in his behavior. Now the, the scriptures are silent, but we can imagine the differences. I mean, he is alive. He was dead and now he's alive. There's a big difference there to what he used to be and now he is. And that difference should be even more so in our life. Because Lazarus was given physical life. He, I believe he was also given eternal life. But in the, in the parable, or the, the story there, God brought him back to physical life. And if you are a Christian... You've been given eternal life. There should be a huge difference. And I think if there's any sensitivity to us at all this morning of a concept of living right before God, if we really ponder upon that, and we don't have to ponder too long, but we'll realize that we fall short of what God expects of us. We just fall short. But glory be to God, because look at that verse again in verse number one. If any man sin... We have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. Our first point this morning is the advocacy of Christ. If any man sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. You know, Jesus is more to us than we will ever be able to fathom. He's more. He is more. Whatever, whatever height we have in our mind of who Jesus is, he's more. He's more. He is the Son of God. He's God in the flesh. And I appreciate those things. And we need those things. But He is also our advocate. Because even though we have been, been given eternal life, sometimes 
we're going to live like Sarazzle, right? We're going to live like we live amongst the dead. We're going to make huge mistakes. We're going to do ridiculous things. We're going to sin. In fact, in John, 1 John 1.10, he writes, If we say that we have not sinned, we make him a liar. So we're going to sin. So we need an advocate. Even after salvation, we need an advocate because we sin. Yes, as believers, we have already been delivered from the penalty of sin. There's no eternal death. We, like the old saying goes, if you've been born once, you're going to die twice. But if you've been born twice, as in born physically and born spiritually, you're only going to die once. And that's a physical death. There is no spiritual death for those who are in Jesus Christ. We've been delivered from the penalty of sin. But we have not yet been delivered from the presence of sin. It's still among us. It's even within us. And the word advocate there, I think, is which, which is the reason why we need an advocate. But the word advocate is used by John in a couple other places. And one of those places is in the book of John. He, he uses that same Greek word for the Holy Spirit, parakletos, or something like that, pronounced like that in the, in the Greek, and it's translated as comforter. But here he uses the same word, and it's to describe our Savior as an advocate. Now, out of context, if you take that Greek word out of context, you take it out of the Bible, you put it in a Greek dictionary, you just read that, it simply, mean one, simply means one who comes along the side of someone to help. And so in context, you get to see how, how he comes along inside, uh, alongside of us to help. And because in context here, because John says that we have an advocate with the Father because of our sin. So there we are. We need an advocate because of our sin with the Father. So it's, a, it's kind of a go-between. It's, it's coming alongside, yes, but it's an advocate with the Father. We can envision a courtroom setting. I would like for you to understand that or envision a courtroom setting with God the Father as the judge and Jesus Christ the righteous as our advocate. And every time we sin, we confess that sin to our advocate who then intercedes to the judge on our behalf. Hebrews 7.25 states that Jesus Christ ever liveth to make intercession. He ever lives 24 hours a day, 7 days a week, 365 days a year. He's always making intercession for you and for me as we are believers. He is our advocate. And just like you would be, now think of this, if you were in a real courtroom setting, a physical courtroom setting, and you were there, and you were in something very, very serious, you would be hanging on every word that your lawyer told you, right? You would, you would want to trust him very, very much. So in the same scenario, we would want to trust our advocate even more. We should draw close to Christ every single day. We need Him because we sin. But we don't just need Him for personal reasons. Although it's, this next one is still personal, but for sin. Because in that same courtroom, there's somebody else. It's not just you, the advocate, and the judge. There's somebody else in that courtroom. There's the accuser of the brethren. The accuser of the brother. In Revelation chapter 12, verse 10, John again writes, I heard a loud voice saying in heaven, Now has come salvation and strength and the kingdom of our God and the power of his Christ, for the accuser of our brethren is cast down, which accused them before our God day and night. And that last phrase is a past tense. 
And while the accuser will eventually be cast down, as this verse states, today he's still there. He's, a, he's the accuser of their brethren. He is accusing you and me and the whole body of believers in this world day in and day out. So again, in our infinite minds, we can easily see that courtroom again where Satan is relentlessly highlighting every one of our infractions over and over and over again. But get this, he's, he's no match for God. He's no match for our advocate. The roaring lion has nothing on the line of Judah. There's no comparison. There's nothing he can bring to the table that our advocate and our judge has not already dealt with. You can say that as the accuser, he's late to court because it's already been paid for. It's already been paid for. Our advocate has taken care of that. He is Jesus Christ the righteous. There's nothing to fear. And because our advocate, the reason for that is because our advocate is not only the lion of the tribe of Judah. He is also the lamb slain before the foundation of the world. Jesus Christ the righteous. Look at the end of verse 1 again. It says, We are that ye sin not. If any man sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous, and he is the propitiation for our sin, and not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. So we look briefly at the advocacy of Christ. Now let's look at the atonement of Christ. Because if you really think about it, if you really study it out, Jesus can only be our advocate before God the Father because He paid the sin debt. That's the only way. He paid it all. I love that passage, Jesus, or that hymn, Jesus paid it all. In my, in, my, in my kitchen, my wife made this little plaque, and right above the kitchen sink it says, Jesus paid it all. Almost at least 60 to 70% of the time, I'll go down there and I'll do something, I'm probably making coffee or something like that, and I'll walk away. Jesus paid it all, because it's on the wall. And I just want to sing it now, because it's in my heart. But Jesus did pay it all. All of it. Jesus paid it all. Following the foundation that John laid in chapter 1, and even before that in the gospel according to John, that Jesus is the Word who was made flesh. That same Jesus died for the entire world. I, I, I I personally like this verse very much. He is not just the payment or the propitiation for our sins, but for the whole world. For the sins of the whole world. And if you think about that verse, look at that verse 2 again. And He is the not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. So those two last phrases, not for ours only, but for the sins of the whole world. When this was written, what category do you think we were in? Not in the first one. Praise God, we're in the second one. We get, we get redemption. We're in that one. For the whole world, Jesus died. Praise the Lord. He died for the sins of the entire world. Now, this is called by many to be universal atonement. And I don't care how you cut it, who you follow, by what name you call it. Jesus paid the sin debt for every single man. For every single person. This is how the Apostle Paul could preach on Mars Hill. In Acts chapter 17, verse 30, he says that God tolerated sin for a while, but now commands every man everywhere to repent. How can Paul say every man everywhere to repent if Christ didn't die for the sins of the whole world? He couldn't, but he did. Jesus Christ paid it all. And for us Gentiles, I think for us to really appreciate the atonement of Christ and to, to better understand what God did on the cross of Calvary, 
I want you to turn to Hebrews chapter 9. Just a few pages to the back, to the, to the left. Hebrews chapter 9. What God did on the cross of Calvary in the person of Jesus Christ is extremely significant. And while you're turning there, and before we read a few verses there, I would like to briefly, because we could be in Hebrews for a very long time, but I would like to briefly summarize the purpose of the priesthood in the Old Testament in light of atonement. The purpose of the priesthood in the Old Testament in light of atonement. Now, a summary. Because I think in order for us to fully understand the New Covenant, we need to understand the Old Covenant. Because otherwise, there's going to be the things we miss. So we know from Genesis chapter 1 that Israel is God's chosen people. God reached down into this world, pulled out Adam, and through, or Abraham rather, and, pulled, and through him, he would bless the world through his methods, through, through the laws, and through ceremonies, and all those things. He would show them Jesus Christ. So all of the laws... All of the ceremonies, all of the commands, whether they're for moral living, social separation, or just some common sense laws, all of them were designed to point to Jesus Christ. All of them. Galatians 3.24 says the law was our schoolmaster to bring us unto Christ that we might be justified by faith. It was there to point us, to point them, to point the world to Jesus Christ. What does that mean? This means that all the sacrifices pointed to Jesus Christ, every single one of them. Even the Day of Atonement, we're going to talk about here in a moment, we won't get in, in too much depth, but at the Day of Atonement, the, the high priest would come in with two goats. One was a scapegoat and one was a sacrificial goat. And one he would let go into the woods, and the other one he would crucify, or he would sacrifice above the mercy seat. So Christ paid both of them. The, the scapegoat went outside of the camp, and Christ went in the camp to be crucified. The scapegoat carried our sins away. The, uh, the, the sacrifice paid our sins. They were both. Jesus can separate our sins as far as from the east as from the west and take them out of the way. Praise the Lord. All of those sacrifices pointed to Jesus Christ. And at the height of all those sacrifices, I believe, is the Day of Atonement. The Day of Atonement. Jews consider this one of the holy days, if not the most holy day, uh, in their calendar. It's called Yom Kippur in the Jewish, to the Jews. It's a most holy day, and it's only performed one day a year. Now, if you remember how the tabernacle was set up, picture the tabernacle is kind of like a rectangle. It's kind of like this, and it's in three different areas, right? You got the, you got the outer court, you got the tabernacle, then you got the holy place in the middle, then you got the holy of holies over here where the Ark of the Covenant at, and all those things like that. So the high priest... And the priest, the Levitical priesthood, which represented all the tribes of Israel, can come in here a lot. Became court of the Gentiles. I mean, there's a whole lot of different variations, but at the core of it, you have this court here. And the other priests, the whole Levitical priesthood could come in here and they would do sacrifices, many other things, church maintenance or tabernacle maintenance. But into this place over here, only once a year, once a year. So beginning with Aaron in the Old Testament, the high priest would not just enter any part of that tabernacle, but into the Holy of Holies. It represented God, the presence of God. And because it was only used once a year, think about that. For 364 days of the year, nobody went in there. One day a year. Only maintained throughout the year, of course, but only entered one day a year by the high priest, by one man. 
You can actually study Jewish history, and there's a lack, there's, a, there's less than, I think, 30 high priests on record. 30 people have only went into the Holy of Holies. That's remarkable. For the whole time of the nation of Israel, the whole, uh, the whole many years that they uh, practiced this, the high priest. Now I want you to look at Hebrews chapter 9. The first six verses there, we won't read them, but the author writes of the priesthood that we just talked about and how the lower priest entered the tabernacle. But then I want you to look at verse number 7. But into the second, that's the Holy of Holies, that's all the way at the end there where the Ark of the Covenant is at. But into the second went the high priest alone every year, not without blood, which he offered for himself and for the errors of the people. The Holy Ghost, this signifying that the way into the holiest of all was not yet made manifest, while as the first tabernacle was standing. So there's a veil there. The high priest would go beyond that veil. And the way to God was not made manifest yet. This was the only way. Verse 9 says, which was a figure for the time then present in which were offered both gifts and sacrifices that could not make them that did the service the service perfect. So they would they would go in there. The sin he would sacrifice things for himself. He would sacrifice things for his family and then for all of the children of Israel. Then look down at verse number 11. But Christ being come a high priest of good things to come by a greater and more perfect tabernacle, not made with hands, that is to say, not of this building, neither by the blood of goats and calves, but by his own blood, he entered in once into the holy place, having obtained eternal redemption. Then I want you to jump down to verse 24. For Christ is not entered into the holy places made with hands, which are the figures of the true, but into heaven itself. That means we patterned the things down here. The tabernacle is patterned after the real deal, if you will, in heaven. Now to appear in the presence of God for us. So while Jesus was in fact crucified as a man on earth, on the cross, in the flesh, he did not enter any man-made tabernacle patterned after the one in heaven. No, he walked into the Holy of Holies, the real deal. He walked to God in the presence of God, seated on the actual throne of God. And he did so as a man. As a man, the first man. No man has ever came to the throne of God, but Jesus walked in there and sat down on the throne as a man. You see, it was not possible that the blood of bulls and goats should take away sins, as Hebrews 10.4 states. Jesus had to become man. And he is the propitiation for our sins, and not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. You know, the atonement of Christ in light of his advocacy truly brings a handful of things, many things in perspective. So I want you to go back to that courtroom, if you will. When the accuser of the brethren starts pointing his wicked finger at all my sins and shows proof after proof after proof that I'm not worthy to stand before a holy judge, the judge of all the earth, Jesus Christ the righteous stands up next to me, puts his hands around me, looks to the Father and points to the cross. It's paid for. It's paid for. He makes intercession for you and for me. He pleads on my behalf. But he doesn't argue whether or not I committed any of those sins. He just says they're paid for. They are under the blood. They are under the blood. But there is something significant that I want you to see here.
between his advocacy and his atonement. There's actually a barrier. There's actually a wall between his advocacy and his atonement. That's important to see. Remember, Satan is the accuser of who? The brethren. Not the world. The brethren. He accuses those who are already in the family of God. And notice how this chapter begins back in 1 John. He says, my little children. I realize that's a common expression to denote the relationship between a teacher and a student back in those days. But it also puts the believer in the family of God. Satan is not accusing the world, of which the vast majority do not have eternal life. They're already under condemnation, according to John chapter 3. He is accusing the brethren. So it's important to notice that while atonement is for the whole world, only family members have an advocate. Only those who are in Christ, in Jesus Christ the righteous, have an advocate with the Father. Only believers. So there must be a point in our life when we become believers, when we become a part of the family of God. By grace through faith, accept Jesus Christ as our Savior. Because it will make all the difference in that courtroom. Think about it. If you are a born-again believer, if you are truly in Christ, the man serving as your advocate to the right is your brother. Your older brother. Because he's the first. He's Jesus Christ the righteous. And not only that, the judge of all the earth is your father. So get this now, regardless of how that court date goes, when it's all said and done, you're going home to have supper with your father. That's, that's huge. That's a big deal. You're going home because you're still in the family. You're going home for supper. But make, make no mistake, though. Romans chapter 14 says, Every knee shall bow, and every tongue shall confess to God. And every one of us shall give account of himself to God. So we will all stand before a holy God. We will all stand and give account. We will all be in need of an advocate, but many, maybe even, I hope not, in this room, are going to stand there alone without an advocate. You will have to defend yourself before God without a qualified representation, without Jesus Christ the righteous. And friends, there's no hope without Jesus Christ. There's no hope. Romans 3.10 says there is none righteous. No, not one. So how do we expect to stand before a holy God who's true and righteous when we're not righteous without an advocate who is? We need Jesus Christ, the righteous. So whether we recognize it or not, or whether the world recognizes it or not, Jesus has paid for all of their sins, all of them, every single one of them, past, present, and future. The only thing that keeps us from eternal life is pride. Not admitting to God that you are a sinner and not accepting Jesus Christ as that payment for sin. In fact, John says that if you don't accept Christ, you're calling God a liar. Because God says you need Him. God says that Jesus Christ paid your sin debt. And if we, if we refuse Jesus Christ, we're saying, I don't need that, nor do I believe that. And we're calling God, the creator of all the world, a liar. We must repent. Turn from self and sin and believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. Friends, you don't want to stand before a holy God without an advocate. Sinners in the hands of an angry God, preached Jonathan Edwards. Our sin is paid for. Ask him to be your advocate. Jesus says, come. And as we continue on, in our, I want you to move to our last thought here. I want you to look at verse number three. I want to read through a few verses here. Verse three says, and hereby 
We do know that we know him if we keep his commandments. And he that saith, I know him and keepeth not his commandments is a liar and the truth is not in him. But whoso keepeth his word in him verily is the love of God perfected. Hereby know we that we are in him. He that saith he abideth in him ought himself also to so to walk even as he walked. Brethren, I write no new commandment unto you, but an old commandment, which ye have heard, which ye have had from the beginning. The old commandment is the word which ye have heard from the beginning. Again, I write a new commandment. I write unto you, uh, which thing is true in him and in you, because the darkness is past and the true light now shineth. He that saith he is in the light and hateth his brother is in darkness even until now. He that loveth his brother abideth in the light and there is none occasion of stumbling in him. But he that hateth his brother is in darkness and walketh in darkness and knoweth not, knoweth not whether he goeth because that darkness has blinded his eyes. We have talked about Jesus Christ being our advocate. We have talked about the efficacy or the effectiveness of his atoning blood. But I would like to point out one more truth this morning that may be a little bit more practical in our in our daily living. I want to talk about the abiding of Christ, the Christ abiding in us. Look at verse 6. It says, He that saith he abideth in him ought himself also so to walk, even as he walked. And we talked a little bit about that last week. But verse 10 states also that he that loveth his brother abideth in light. Now I realize that John is referring to how we abide in him or how we abide in the light. But we know from many other passages, the abiding is mutual. There's a mutual abiding eye in you. And he and he and us. In fact, John 15, 7 says, if ye abide in me and my words abide in you, you shall ask what you will and it shall be done unto you. Chapter two, verse 28 of this first John says, little children, abide in him. That when he shall appear, we have we may have confidence and not be ashamed before him at his coming. So in context here in chapter two, John is encouraging believers. He's pushing them. He's motivating us to abide in Christ. Believers. So abiding is not synonymous with salvation. Abiding here in context is synonymous with sanctification. And if we understand the words of our Savior back in John 15 as conditional, then we see that abiding of Christ in us is also conditional. It has to do with our walk, our practical walk with the Lord. In other words, if we abide in Him, he is going to abide in us. And in this, John gives us some descriptions here of what it looks like to abide in Christ and what it looks like to not abide in Christ. And then he also gives us some consequences of, what it, what the, of, of abiding in Christ and not abiding in Christ. Remember again that this is written to believers. And if we want, to, if we want God to live through us, then we must live through God. We must abide in him. So let's look at some descriptions here. John first reminds us of an old commandment. And then he gives us a new commandment. Now, if you've been reading this, I hope you have. You're probably walking away, scratching your head like, what's the old commandment and what's the new commandment? So let me shed some light on this. Verse number seven says, brethren, I write no new commandment unto you. And then verse eight says, again, a new commandment I write unto you. First John chapter three, look at verse 11. John writes, this is the message that ye heard from the beginning, that we should love one another. So what's the old commandment? Love one another. 
And then notice verses 8 and 10 again in 1 John chapter 2. Again, a new commandment I write unto you, which thing is true in him and in you, because the darkness is past and the true light now shineth. Verse 10 says, he that loveth his brother abideth in the light. So the new commandment is actually the same as the old commandment, but it's different in character. It's different in emphasis. It's different in experience. It's different in ability. It's in the light. Yes, love one another like the Old Testament teaches. But unlike the Old Testament, darkness is past and true light now shines. We are living in that age of light, the age of grace, the church age. Jesus Christ is the light that now shines. And he demonstrates to all humanity what it meant to love one another. Yes, we see some glimpses of that in the Old Testament. But nothing compares to the love of God in the person of Jesus Christ. And because God is love, and because Jesus is God, He, Jesus, Jesus Christ the righteous, is the divine declaration of love to us. So the old commandment is to love one another, and the new commandment is to love one another in the light of the gospel. That's the difference. It's a new aspect. And while we are to live by the word of God, there are some things we should do. We should live separate from sin. We are to be holy. We should do so in love. And really, we see the contrast. We see a lot of contrast in the world today. We see one person trying to do everything obedient without love, and then we ignore all the commandments and we just love. So it has to be both. We can't put one attribute of God over another attribute of God. And let's look at some of these details of abiding, of abiding in Christ. First, eight of chapter four, first John, first John chapter four, verse eight, says, He that loveth not knoweth not God. For God is love. He that loveth not knoweth not God, for God is love. True agape love is therefore a characteristic of conversion. It is an attribute that believers should have. It's one that should always define us, among other things, of course. It should be a mark of evidence that we are, in fact, abiding in Christ. It's the difference of, and we've, we've used a symbology before between a, a soda, a soda can and a fruit juice can. You know, the fruit juice, you can, you can shake it up all day long. It's going to open and nothing's going to happen. It's going to be still. That's evidence of the Spirit of God living in us, specifically the love of God living in us. So it's not nothing that it's not something we can muster. It's something we surrender and ask God to do a work in us so we can do a work in others. But now let's look at what happens. So that's what happens when you abide in Christ. You love others. But look at what happens when we don't abide in Christ. When we choose not to love others. Now, for the true believer, Christ still lives within when we fail. That never changes. But when we choose not to love, we are making a deliberate decision not to abide in Christ. When we choose not to love, in fact, when we, choose not, when we choose not to do right at all, we are making a deliberate decision not to abide in Him. We are choosing the world over Christ. And we are making Him unwelcome in our life. Simply put, he that loves abides in the light. And he that does not love abides in darkness. Taking a little further, look at 1 John chapter 3. Look at the end of verse 14. Verse 14 says, He that loveth not his brother abideth in death. And whosoever hateth his brother is a murderer. And ye know that no murderer hath eternal life abiding in him. 
So here John runs the concept of hatred to its natural conclusion, death. Hatred is not to be a characteristic of believers. Hatred is a characteristic. Hatred is an attribute of death. And for the believer, a lack of love is the opposite, the opposite of abiding in Christ, and therefore the opposite of Christ abiding in you. So what's the outcome of that? Look at verse 11 of chapter 2 again, back in our text. Verse 11 says, He that hateth his brother is in darkness, and walketh in darkness, and knoweth not whither he goeth, because that darkness hath blinded his eyes. Furthermore, the previous verse states that for the believer who abides in the light, there is none occasion of stumbling in him. So get this, we put all that together. When we choose not to love our brethren, we are choosing not to abide in Christ, which results in us stumbling around in the dark as if we were unbelievers. Now this is obviously not speaking of physical stumbling. This is not, you know, turning the lights off and trying to figure out where things are at. This is not talking about physical blindness. This is talking about spiritual blindness and spiritual stumbling. It's like when we don't love and we choose not to abide in Christ, we come to a point in our lives when we have an idea or a conviction that we don't even know that it's right. We stumble and we hold to it as if it were, as if it were truth. But we don't even know it. We're stumbling. And think about, think about the world. Think about what's going on in America right now. Think about Germany and think about all the other countries. How many believers are walking around living lives contrary to this book? They're blinded. Why are they blinded? Because Christ is not abiding in them. Because they choose not to abide in Christ. Proverbs 4.19 says, The way of the wicked is as darkness. They know not what they stumble Again, the sad thing is that Christians all over the world are harboring hatred, are harboring strong discontent. They're harboring a lack of love for others at the cost of spiritual understanding. And they are content in that spiritual misunderstanding. But friends, this doesn't have to be us. God didn't give his life for the world so that we can continue in darkness, but so that we can continue in the light. We must choose light. Choose light today. Choose Christ. Choose to love. Choose to love Him. Choose to love others. I mean, what's the two greatest commandments? Love the Lord thy God with all thy heart, mind, and soul, and love others. We must love. Choose light. Choose to abide in Him. Because God greatly desires to abide in us. Yes, we must be obedient to our Lord's command, but we must do so in love. In fact, God connects love and obedience together. And when it comes to loving others, we are to love the brethren and we are to love the lost. Never forget that God loved us while we were lost. He loved us before we loved him. It is written of God, as we kind of come down to a close here, it is written of God that he so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. May it be written of us that we so love the world that we gave them the gospel. Preach the word. In season and out of season, preach the word. That is our only hope. That's the only hope for America. That's the only hope for Germany. That's the only hope for Romania. And any country on this planet is the preaching of the word of God. In season, when it's convenient, and out of season, when it's not convenient. Preach the word. Preach the word. We have an advocate. 
And that same advocate died for the sins of the whole world. And that same advocate abides with uh, in us so that we can bring him glory by telling others about Jesus Christ the righteous. Preach the word. Let's pray.